0: This is Steve Kim. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Today, we're going to continue in our series entitled, Did Jesus Dehumanize? Just by way of quick reminder, how we got here is, well, of course, we can't go without mentioning this. Andy released a book, uh, Reclaimed. <laughs> and uh, Bless you, Steve. I'll get some commission from you later. Uh, the subtitle is, How Jesus Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World. And evidently, that subtitle caught the attention of some skeptics and critics of Christianity, some of whom just left... Scripture verses, especially from the Gospels, which seem to indicate Jesus dehumanizing other people. So last week we talked about the parable of ten minus, where you hear the story of this nobleman who becomes king, and then when he becomes king, he wants his enemies slaughtered before him. And so in essence, Jesus contrasts himself against that king, showing himself to be king of peace by riding a donkey into Jerusalem, because that was a symbol of peace, as opposed to riding a horse, because that was a symbol of war. And so he demonstrated himself to be this king of peace who comes to Jerusalem. Today we're going to talk about Jesus cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. And this is a really apt segue, because if you read it in Matthew Mark and Luke, those gospels. This story more or less follows immediately after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. So I think this is a chronologically, this is a good segue here. Uh, So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, because this is where people just find what Jesus is doing really seemingly out of character for him. Because again, we think of Jesus as you know gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but this seems like anything but, and especially given what's going on culturally right now, and especially in the United States with all the rioting and things like that, some people look at this and go, well, maybe this gives us some justification for doing what we're doing kind of a thing. So this is Mark 11, 15 and 16. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So there you have it, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, going full beast mode here, if that's not too blasphemous to say. Jesus being a jerk. That is how many critics of Christianity perceive it, right? And so they they like to bring this up because... Uh, Even for Christians, right? This just seems out of character for him, so we don't know what to make of it. So, what are your thoughts? I would say, Steve, that this has got to be one
1: of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible from my experience pastoring. Because I don't know about you. But I can't tell you the number of times that I have encountered people who are unsure of whether or not you're allowed to sell anything at church. As we get into this passage, what we're going to see is that Jesus is not concerned about the buying and selling of stuff In this case, in the temple, we can apply that to the church as well. That is not the point. And if you uh, do have a coffee shop attached to your church, rest assured uh, that that's not what's being addressed here. It's actually something much more profound Mm -hmm. and much deeper that's being addressed here. And to appreciate it, we have to do what we did last time. Now, if you didn't listen to our last show, one of the things that we talked about is, as, you know, Steve and I have been asked over the years to, unpack verses or help make sense of verses that just don't make a lot of sense. One of the things that we talked about, and you'll hear me talk quite a bit about, is making sure that you're putting a verse into its context, that The Bible being broken up into verses is a fairly new phenomenon. We did that to the Bible. It didn't come that way. The authors didn't write it like that. Mm -hmm. They wrote it as something to be read in its entirety, not something to be parsed out. And so, we've created verses to be helpful, but as mentioned, they can be unhelpful when you think that that's all that needs to be read, but in fact, it needs to be read in its context. So, what we want to do then is practicing that. And showing what's taking place here is putting this passage into its context, which is interesting because it brings us to another passage. It's often referred to as the mean miracle uh, in which Jesus is further kind of shown to be rude or mean as he's going to mistreat a plant we'll see in this passage. But what I want to do is back all the way up
0: to Mark. Chapter 11, verse 11. I'll just read that verse right here. Chapter 11, verse 11 of Mark. So this comes immediately after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And Mark says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That is the twelve disciples who are sort of his core group of disciples. So, that's verse 11 right there.
1: Now, we're going to continue to read, but I just want to note, this is a key verse. So, as we're going to see as we continue to read, this is going to be important to understand
0: what's happening with Jesus uh, entering in the temple. So, then we continue in verse 12. So, this is the mean miracle passage. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, from here on, you read the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. And remember, Verse 19 said, when evening came, they went out of the city. And now, verse 20, as we come back to it, now it's the next morning. It says, in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins." This is still weird, <laughs> I know, right? It's still
1: strange. And in fact, we've got three things that are throwing us here now. Now we started with verse fifteen, sixteen, where Jesus goes into the temple and has a tantrum, and we're trying to understand that. Yeah, we backed up, and now we've got Jesus being mean to plants and cursing them, and then we finished this with another couple of verses that are in, that are often misunderstood. Pro, again, I told you, this is one of the most misunderstood pieces of Scripture, where people have this idea that if they just have enough faith, that they can move mountains. Now, what we're going to do now is put this in its context, and what you're going to see is all three of these make perfectly good sense, and that they are incredibly powerful of what Jesus is communicating that, in fact, isn't dehumanizing, but humanizing. Okay. So, if we're going to then put this passage into its context, we've we've done the first thing. We've read a fuller picture of what's being communicated here. And as we go along, you'll see that, in fact, you're also going to need to read chapters 12 and chapters 13 of Mark, because uh, Jesus basically says the same thing again. And he's going to do it in a different context this time. And he's going to tease out the same principles that we're going to uh, pull out. These ones, though, when we look at just Mark chapter 11, you have to work harder to see what Jesus is doing. And the reason is, is because you got to put Jesus in his context. And what you're going to see is Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament quite a bit here. So, Mark 11, is important because Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He walks around, he's looking at what's happening, and then he leaves when he comes back into Jerusalem, he passes by a fig tree. Now, a fig tree is significant in the Old Testament because this isn't just true of figs. It's also true of, of vineyards and things like that. But fig trees, when you read the Old Testament, is Often referred to as the people of Israel or God's blessing or the temple. You you see this in like passages such as Micah 7 1 through 4, Um, and you see this in Hosea uh, chapter 9, verse 10, and you see this in verse 16. And specifically, these ones are quite interesting passages because. Micah 7, verses 1 to 4, talk about the fig tree and talk about the early fruit that is enjoyed in this fig tree. Now, that's something that often confuses people because they'll be like, often refer to this as the mean miracle. Not only does Jesus curse this fig tree and it withers, but you're like, man, Jesus, it's like, it tells you it's not even the season for fig fruit. And so, that can kind of throw people again if you're not accustomed to fig trees, But if you're accustomed to fig trees, then this passage makes perfectly good sense because what you would understand is that Jesus is looking for the early fruit, uh, which Micah talks about that the Jews enjoyed. And this is uh, my father-in-law grows figs. So, he explained this to me, that when a fig is growing, a fig tree, that it will grow these big leaves, and right where the stem of the leaf is, this is where the fruit, the fig, will form, but it begins with this bud. Interestingly, there are some plants that the buds are edible and, in fact, are quite tasty and sweet, and this is true of the fig tree. So, he's going there looking for this early fruit which is a sign that, first of all, it's something that you can eat. And then secondly, it's a sign that there's going to be a fig that's going to grow there. And so, what do we see? We see that Jesus goes to this tree that's beautiful, right? It's in leaf. It looks good on the outside, but as he goes in to find fruit, to eat this early fig fruit, right? He's finding that there isn't any, which is also an indication that this tree will bear no fruit. Now, that is significant, to what's going to happen, because again, going back to Mark 11:11, he's just been in Jerusalem. He's just looked around and now he's coming back to Jerusalem. One of the ways that Jews prophesied in the Old Testament is they acted the prophecy out. And what we're beginning to see is Jesus is acting out this prophecy. Now, if the fig tree represents God's blessing, and in particular, God's blessing to the the Jewish people, specifically uh, with regards to the temples, Jesus is going to direct his attention, then you're seeing that God's blessing is going to become a curse, but This is going to have an interesting effect in the end, because it's actually going to go from a curse to a blessing, which is interesting as we're going to walk through this passage. Now, just to uh, mention as well here, when you read Hosea chapters 9 and 10, again, talks about this early fig fruit but you also get in verse 16, God's judgment, which comes as the root of this fig tree is withered
0: and it says they yield no fruit. And just to kind of put it in a little bit more context too, now the role of the prophets was to bring the people of God back to their covenant faithfulness and so often what prophets had to do was warn them and criticize them for all of the evil that they're doing that is what's going on through the mind of Hosea if you read Hosea right it's all about god's people being like a like an unfaithful wife right a wife who was unfaithful to her husband just as Israel is being unfaithful to the covenant husband, if you will, who is God. Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's that's the
1: context of verse sixteen, that Israel is experiencing this this judgment, and the way that it's being talked about is that the root is withered and will yield no fruit. So Jesus is communicating in a way that that makes sense in that culture, that Jewish culture that's steeped in the Old Testament. Which is interesting, by the way, because although the disciples often don't track with Jesus, because I don't think that they're quite as educated as the Pharisees are, or the Sadducees would be. But it is interesting, isn't it, Steve, that the
0: Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're never confused. Yeah, and they're scandalized by the kinds of things that Jesus does, right? Yeah. Because that actually, this shows Jesus' self-understanding and and he, he is one with authority. In fact, if you keep reading from here, what you see is Jesus' authority is being questioned. Yes. And so, yeah, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the learned elites, they understood perfectly what Jesus was doing, and they're scandalized. That's right. They question his authority. And, and why would that be? Well, he is
1: equating the temple with a fig tree, and he's cursing it which is significant here and we're going to see that develop even more as Jesus passes by the fig tree, right? This becomes symbolic. This becomes a foreshadow of what's to come. He then comes into Jerusalem. He goes into the temple, which is the the focus of his condemnation, and what does he find there? Now, people focus on this idea that he finds their commerce. But that's not what Jesus is concerned about. Commerce was always a part of the temple. You see, you had to understand that as people are coming at this point in the story for Passover, they're coming from all over the nations. And just as today, if you're coming from all over the place in like an airport, one of the things that you need to do is change your currency And that's exactly what they had to do when they came to the temple. They had to change their
0: currency. And in fact, the way that it worked is they had a temple currency. Yeah, you had to pay the temple tax as well. This was that that season where you had to pay the temple tax. But one thing that they didn't want to do was take Roman coins because of all the pagan things that were written on there. So, it was just deemed unacceptable at the temple. So, then... You would go there and bring your Roman coins and they would change it into something that was more acceptable for temple use. And that's why you see all these money changers. And another thing, too, is just as you're mentioning, people traveling from all over the place. So Passover is one of the great three pilgrim feasts. right? So that means Jews from all over the place, they come to celebrate Passover and often they would stay until the feast of Shavuot or Feast of, of uh, what we call Pentecost. And that's why in Acts chapter 2, uh, when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit and they start preaching, there are Jews from all over the place because they came for Passover. And there, while they're there, they're staying uh, for Pentecost as well. So there, all that to say, there's people from everywhere. Now, here's the thing. When you come into the temple As a faithful Jew, what you would want to do is make a sacrifice, whether it's guilt offering or or those kinds of things. But if you're traveling from far away, it's going to be very difficult to bring all of your animals for sacrifice, and I would assume that especially because when you make these sacrifices, they need to be spotless, right? They can't be maimed or anything like that. So when you're traveling that kind of a distance, and mind you, this is like first century Palestine, the Roman world. It's not like you can just take a plane and instantly you're there. You're traveling for weeks in some very dangerous places through treacherous terrain. And so you don't want your animals damaged, right? So And it's impractical to just, bring them and so then you would want to buy the sacrificial animal there in the city and that's why you see so many merchants selling animals for sacrifice and changing currency so on and so forth exactly so then think
1: about that steve is jesus trying to stop people from commerce no that's just part of temple practice what is he stopping them from he's stopping them from participating in temple worship in in the sacrificial system is what we see is he in verse 16 is he wouldn't allow them to carry their merchandise through the temple courts he's stopping the whole Sacrificial system, which is significant at this point, and I think is important for people to appreciate when you put it into its context what is he actually doing? What is he actually upset about? Is he upset about the money changers? Is he upset about the buying and selling? No, that was a part of temple practice. That's not the focus here, it's the temple, it's the
0: sacrificial system. That's the focus. There's another aspect to this too, though, is the commerce isn't the problem, but how commerce was conducted was often an issue, right? In this case, Jesus is really upset, partly because these money changers and these, you know, have you ever felt like when you travel to somebody else and you're trying to buy something, do you ever get this fear in the back of your mind that you're somehow getting cheated out of your money? Um, I remember when I traveled to Indonesia one time and we went to this one shop to, you know, I I needed to buy a belt. Uh, But what the locals told us before we went there is if they name the price, call for a quarter of it, they said. And they're going to laugh at you like you don't know what you're talking about. But stay at the quarter mark because they will often quadruple their prices if, if they know that you're a foreigner. So that's what I did. Um, I wanted to buy this belt. They named the price. I called one quarter of it. They laughed at me. So I was like, okay, then I'll just get it somewhere else. And I turned around and started walking. They grabbed me and I bought the belt. Right. So what's happening here, too, is as people are traveling from far places to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, these money changers and these, um, people who are selling these sacrificial animals, they would be like charging an exorbitant amount of exchange rate or the price for, uh, these animals. Now, if you noticed, uh, in verse 15, it talks about the benches of those selling doves. Now, a dove or pigeons or, or these kinds of birds, they, they were, if you read Leviticus, you did that. If you couldn't afford a lamb, if that was too expensive, then you offer doves or pigeons because they were cheaper. In other words, these are people who are cheating poor people out of their money too, right? And so there's a lot of injustice going on here. Fraud is, well, this place is fraught with fraud, if you will, right? And so Jesus is chastising them for that as well. And and I think that that's the key is the fraud here. But I'm not disagreeing
1: with you, Steve, that that the buying and selling, that there was fraud taking place there. But what we're going to see next is that Jesus is more concerned about those that are coming to the temple than he is about those that are actually buying and selling at the temple. Because notice what he says next is, um, when we get to verse 17 is, isn't not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. All nations, yeah. So, what I want to do is I want to look at Isaiah 56. Now, verse 7 is where Jesus is quoting from, but Steve and I were actually talking about how this passage provides so much context if you read, again, Isaiah 56. So, Steve's going to read here starting in verse 1 and bringing us into into this verse.
0: So, this is Isaiah 56, starting from verse 1. This is what the Lord says. "...maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree." For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered.
1: Perfect. I think, man, you really don't even need to say a whole lot, do you, Steve? Just Mm. when you begin to read in context what Jesus is quoting, what he's doing— It it explains what he's saying here. Now, notice that Jesus is upset. God's upset because this isn't his plan for the temple. His plan was never for the temple to become a national shrine for Israel that's only for the Jewish people. It was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. nations, This was was meant to be something open to all, but yet that's not what's happening. And so, as you begin to see why is Jesus upset— He's upset because people are being excluded from the promise
0: that God has made. Yeah, and especially if you look at the structure of the whole place. Now, I had the privilege of going to Israel years ago. And in Jerusalem, there is actually a 1 to 50 scale model of first century Jerusalem and what things might have looked like back then. And if you look at the temple, there, there you have different sections of the temple, right? So there's the large area that's kind of walled off, and that is called the Court of Gentiles. And then there's a smaller place inside. There you see the Court of Women, and then there's the gate. Once you get through the gates, you have the Court of Priests, and then you have the tall building, that structure, right? And that is the holy place. And then inside is the holy of holies where God's presence was set to dwell. And that place, nobody goes in except the high priest only once a year on the day of atonement, which is like this national holy day where the high priest offers this sacrifice on behalf of the entire nation now when these merchants and money changers are doing their business they're actually doing it in the court of gentiles so they've taken up the entire place where the gentiles are actually supposed to be able to come and worship god so back in those days you had your god fearers and others who were full converts to judaism But these people are actually pushing Gentiles out. They're excluding the Gentiles also by doing their business right where they're supposed to. The Gentiles are supposed to, the outsiders, right, are supposed to worship God. It's interesting because uh, I'd
1: encourage listeners to check out Ephesians where the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus breaking the dividing wall of hostility, he says. And this is what Paul's talking about here, is these walls that literally divided people, uh, and you you have in the temple. And Jesus has broken these walls, particularly this wall that divided the people, not just from each other, but divided them from God. And so then when you see in Isaiah 56, verse 8, as Steve read, What does it say there? I will gather still others to them beside those already gathered. And again, what you're getting is this sense of foreshadowing that God is doing this, that he is going to make, you you haven't made my house into a house of prayer, but I'm going to make this house into a house of prayer for all nations. And we're beginning to see this happen. This is why I said earlier, remember that when you're reading the gospels, that these These gospel writers like Mark isn't writing what he remembers. He's writing what he wants you to remember. It's not like he's just picking stories at random. He's writing things that are important to understand, to appreciate who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Now, the second one that we get into, and I I mean, I tell you, Steve, you and I could talk forever on this, but this is such a key verse here that often, again, gets misunderstood is, after we read here in verse verse 17, my house will be a house of prayer. Jesus says, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, again, Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. Specifically, he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7. Steve, can you read Jeremiah 7, 1 to 15? So, we're going to put this into its full context
0: again in this passage. All right. So this is what it says. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless— Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, We're safe, safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling for my name. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim." Now, notice here a couple things. (laughs)
1: This is a powerful passage. Mm -hmm. I mean, first of all, you put Jeremiah into its context. This is a, a passage in which the Babylonians have captured or are going to capture Israel and are going to destroy the temple. So, it's specific Jesus quoting from Jeremiah because the... Romans have captured Israel, and Jesus is going to prophesy as he is currently, but we're going to see again in Mark 12, 13, that there is going to come the destruction of the temple yet again, because God is going to do what he promised he was going to do. He's going to make this uh, a house of prayer for all nations. He's going to expand. Now, um, we're going to develop this in a moment, so I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I do want to just note, note a couple things here. In verse eleven, what has God been doing? He's been watching, declares the Lord. So remember, I said that Mark eleven eleven is a key passage, and it is because what does Jesus do? It it's says watching. He's watching. He goes into Jerusalem and he watches. He's observing, and now he is judging. And what is his judgment? A lot of people misunderstand what's being communicated here as we read, has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? Now, when Jesus says it, it's a little bit more tricky to understand what's happening, but Jeremiah provides a little more context to this. If you just take a moment to think about it, though, it makes sense. Notice that a den of robbers— is not where the thieving is happening. This is where people misunderstand. They see Jesus condemning that you've made my house into a a den of thieves, as though the thieving is happening in the temple. The thieving isn't happening in the temple. The, the temple has become the den. It's become the hideout. It's become the place that is your safety, your refuge, after you've done the thieving. See, this is what robbers would do. They do this today, right? You have your getaway car in which you go and hide after you do your thieving. And Jesus is condemning the Jews, saying, listen, you've been out doing all these terrible things, stealing, murdering, committing adultery, perjury, you know, worshiping other gods. You know, you've been doing all these things. And then you come to my house, he says, which bears my name, and you think you're safe. Notice what's happening, right? This is judgment that's coming and saying, you're not safe. This isn't a, a safe refuge for you after you've gone
0: and done all your evil. This is the house of God. Yeah, and the attitude of the, the people back in Judah, too, in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah's day, remember where it says, you know, like, don't just keep saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What that means is they trusted in this place. They thought because this is God's house, God will never let this place fall. And as long as we're here, we're safe. But then they would go out and do all these horrible things that God commanded them not to do. Right, specifically, don't steal, don't murder, Don't go after other gods. Like they, they're breaking the Ten Commandments left, right, and center. And then they come to this place and think, Oh, it's the temple of the Lord. You know, the Babylonians, they're never going to be able to overtake us. But boy, were they wrong. And this is what God's saying in Jeremiah is look at what happened in Shiloh in Israel. Like, Don't think I'm not going to let this place fall. Like, You guys are wicked. You need to reform your ways. If you don't, I'm going to do to this house what I did to my former house in Shiloh. Don't think you're safe. Don't think you can just do all these evil things with impunity. Don't think I'm going to blink at
1: sin. Exactly right. And now, listeners, before we continue, a message from our very own Steve Kim.
0: Hi, listeners, this is Steve. If you didn't know this already, my wife, Sharina, my two children, my aunt, Tavin, and I move to the Edmonton area to be closer to family. It's been great to see especially our children thrive, being close to their aunt, uncle, cousins, and grandparents. This also means that the work of Apolitics Canada is expanding as I am here to serve Alberta and beyond. If you enjoy and appreciate our ministry and would like to support the work we're doing, there are three things you can do for us. Number one, please pray. Without the work of the Holy Spirit, our work is in vain. Number two, please consider giving financially to the work of Apologetics Canada. You can do that by going to apologeticscanada.com slash donate. That's apologeticscanada.com slash donate. Number three, if you enjoy this podcast, and if you haven't done so already, please leave a five-star rating and a positive review. This helps us get the word out. Thank you for your partnership. We can't do this work without you.
1: And now back to our podcast. And so when now that we've put this into its greater context and have read it within the context of the Old Testament I think it's starting to make sense <laughs> to every what is Jesus doing Jesus is condemning the temple He's condemning the religious practice. He's condemning the Jewish people, particularly evildoers. And we're seeing a foreshadowing of what's going to come. That there's something different coming. Now, notice when we see at the end here that verse 20, right? In the morning, as they went along, they saw that the fig tree had withered from the roots. That's straight from the Old Testament. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. It's died. What is Jesus cursing, right? Is he cursing a fig tree? No, he's not cursing a fig tree.
0: It's God's blessing, right? It, it, it's it's turned into a curse, and and that's coming all that Jesus talks about here and again later too when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple specifically that all gets fulfilled again if you know your first century history in judea you know that uh, in the 60s ad the jews revolt against the romans and so roman imperial army they come and they wipe out the rebels and in doing that they utterly destroy the temple And that was never rebuilt. And to this day, when you go to Jerusalem, what you see there is what the Muslims built, I think in the 7th century, they built the Dome of the Rock. And so that's what's there still today. And the temple has not been rebuilt. And so that was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple. Exactly right. So what Jesus is
1: prophesying is coming, we know happened. And at this point, though, in the story, they just know Jesus is prophesying that we're going to see. And, and again, we don't have time to look into verse, uh, sorry, chapters 12 and chapters 13, but I'd encourage go go read that. You'll see because now he's going to he's going to say the same thing in in other ways and condemning the temple and prophesying that it's going to be destroyed. But something new is coming and he hints at what new thing is coming in its place. And we see this as this passage ends and again, it's one of those sections that, that often gets read out of context and then doesn't make sense. Or, you know, you get these people who think, oh man, if I just had enough faith, I could tell mountains to move and, and those sorts of, of ideas. That's not what's being communicated here. This isn't about a test of how much faith you have and about whether or not you can move mountains. Notice what's saying here, verse 22, have faith in God. Okay, so first of all, this isn't about you. This is about God. And about having faith in God and what God can do. And now we see in verse 23, truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they have said uh, will happen, it will be done for them. What mountain is Jesus talking about? Again, in that context, the Jews understood what the mountain was. Mount Zion, God's holy mountain, is the temple. And Jesus is referring to all those things that are a part of that temple practice that have just been addressed in this passage. He's referencing, and this is something that's critical to appreciate in its Old Testament context. And I want to read from Micah chapter 4, 1 through 5, which I think will really help give this context
0: of what Jesus is saying. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. So from this passage, you can see this idea of what the
1: mountain uh, represents, especially the mountain represents to the people. It represents, you know, more than just a hill. It, It represents this holy mountain. It represents Zion. It represents the temple. It represents temple practice. It represents God with the people. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying what faith in God can do is throw this mountain with everything that goes along with that. And this idea of religiosity, right? It's, it, it's this idea, I because I, I would really argue, Steve, that what we're seeing in this passage is Jesus not just condemning the temple. He's condemning religion. He's, he's condemning this idea that that you can— fulfill this covenant in your own power. But the reality is, is that you're in need of help. And what do we read here? Therefore, verse 24, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. What we're beginning to see here is that God's doing something different. Instead of this idea of religion, we're beginning to see this idea of relationship and a relationship that's going to come through faith. And he says verse uh, Twenty-five. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. And what we're now beginning to see is that forgiveness is going to come through a different means. Again, this isn't in your power. It's, this is about faith in God. This is about what God can do and about how he can change this idea of, of a religious practice that is not working into a relationship in which it's not built on your power, but on God's power. And specifically, if Jesus is going to continue here, and particularly, he's going to drive this home in, verse, in chapter 12. It's going to come through his son. It's going to come through Jesus, and that we are going to be able to have relationship with God through him. And that this, then, is going to change the whole way, right, that that this covenant is, is to be fulfilled. It's now going to be fulfilled through faith, again, not in your power and your abilities, but in God's and what he has done
0: through Jesus. Yeah, excellent. Uh, and I also couldn't help but notice in all of the passages that we read today from Micah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, and whatnot, what I see over and over again is this idea that God's promises, right? His blessing is for all people, right? All the nations will come to. So, this is not just a Jewish thing. That is how it kind of got entrenched for the Jewish people. And so, in the history of the early church, this was a real kind of a point of tension. They were trying to figure out okay, well, we see that the Gentiles, they are. Also receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do we do with this? How do we figure this out? And now what does it look like to be a Christian if you're not Jewish, right? So they were figuring all of these things out. But right from the beginning, like if you read, if you remember the covenant that God made with Abraham, he promised three things, right? You're going to have all this land around you that you can see. You're going to have descendants. And through your family, he says, the whole world will be blessed, and you see that theme that echo uh, over and over again in especially in the passages that we read all the nations will come to the the mountains and things like that and so then here Jesus is again pointing like there's going to come a day when it's not going to be centered around the temple anymore right remember that story of Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman when she was preoccupied with, well, between us Samaritans and you Jews, we argue about which mountain that we should, you know, worship God on. And Jesus says, well, the hour is here now when God will seek those people who will worship him in truth and in spirit, right? And and so this is not about temple anymore. And you're seeing that theme running through this passage in Mark already. Again, this promise is not just for a particular group of people that he favors. He favors everyone. It's for me. It's for you, even us Gentiles. It's for everyone. And so, think about that.
1: Those who would think that this passage is dehumanizing— it's in fact the exact opposite. It's humanizing. Jesus is condemning those who want to exclude, and he's opening up this promise that was meant for all people, for all people, that through him. And this is one of the things that that comes up in the the book uh, Reclaimed that I talk about, and that's in Colossians chapter one verse twenty-eight, that Paul talks about that it's through Jesus that we're made perfect. And the idea there is is it's through Jesus that we fulfill the purpose that we were originally intended for. This, in fact, goes all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way back to a fig tree, a fig tree whose leaves were ripped off to hide what? To hide their shame As, as, as evil came into the world their shame was exposed, this broken relationship, and they tried to mend that with fig leaves as they tried to hide their shame. And Jesus has come to take that shame away through what? Through His own shame that we're going to see as He's foreshadowing. We're going to see that this is going to require His death. It's going to require His life in exchange for our own, so that through Him, we can experience the kind of world that He had intended in the first place. That'll preach.
0: (laughs) Well, listeners, I hope this was helpful to you. This is one of my great joys of working with Apologetics Canada and working as a pastor is to be able to delve into God's word. Being able to look at these, some of these difficult and awkward passages, or at least what we perceive to be awkward passages, to be able to understand it and see just how deep and rich it is. I hope this was enjoyable to you. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to another edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. And we'll come back next week with part three of Did Jesus Dehumanize? And next week, we'll talk about his interaction with the Syrophoenician woman. See you next week.